BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt. Welcome to my podcast, The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I was so happy to have a discussion with Ambassador Nikki Haley. Nikki and I worked together on issues relating to Israel and the Middle East at large. She could always be counted on to speak hard truths to the United Nations, including to the UN Security Council. In today's podcast, we cover the tragic situation unfolding in Afghanistan. We also covered other important topics, ranging from the many flaws and problems with various UN agencies, Iran, and her thoughts on whether or not she will run for president. It is a great discussion, and I hope you will listen to it and share it. This is Jason Greenblatt, and welcome to The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm delighted and honored to have Ambassador Nikki Haley with me today. It was just such a privilege to work with her. Her dedication to the United States of America and really the world at large, I think, left a deep impact, not only at the United Nations, but elsewhere as well. It was a very sad day for me when she announced her departure. Uh, She was so helpful to me uh, on the file that I worked on supporting the and growing the U.S.-Israel relationship, helping to try to build peace between Israel and the Palestinians and certainly Israel and the Arab countries, which ultimately resulted in the Abraham Accords. So I want to thank her for that, and I want to thank her for her years of service to the United States of America. Um, Before we talk about your incredible work at the United Nations, Nikki, I want to speak about the tragic situation in Afghanistan. I don't even know where to start. The rapid U.S. withdrawal, um, the speed at which the Taliban took over, the danger that American citizens and Afghans who helped American citizens are now in, the danger to Afghans who now will have to live under brutal Taliban rule. Uh, Please share your insight on this. You've worked on international files. You understand Afghanistan. What should people understand? Well, Jason, first of all, it's great to be with you. It was such a pleasure to work with you in the administration. You are one of the unsung heroes of that magic team that created the Abraham Accords and so many other things. Um, so it's it's really a treat for me to be on here with you. You know, when you talk about Afghanistan, I just, the only thing I keep thinking is it didn't have to be this way. And, you know, this comes at me from so many different directions. First of all, as a military spouse who, very proud of my husband who served in Afghanistan, sacrificed in Afghanistan, and military families feel united in the service of our loved ones. And so, you know, on one side, you're angry and hurtful for them of what happened. On the other side, as a governor that watched multiple units get deployed to Afghanistan, and our job was not just to try and keep them protected, but to make sure they were proud about their sacrifice. And then just looking at it from a world perspective of how other countries are looking at us in the eyes of what happened, it didn't have to be this way. You know, in in one action, the Biden administration wiped out 20 years of progress, relationships and sacrifice in a way that left us humiliated and damaged in the world. And now you're going to see a Taliban flag flying above 
what used to be the American embassy. You're watching terrorism come back over. I mean, don't ever forget the Taliban gave Al Qaeda safe harbor to the, you know, the many who are responsible for the 3000 that were killed on 9-11. We have more than that left our American allies on the ground to die. I think that's something, you know, Jason, it bothered me so much when I saw the Obama administration lead the charge against Israel. And it, and it bothered me from the standpoint of how do you do that to a friend? How do you do that to an ally and look at the rest of the world and expect them to trust you? Now I'm looking at the Biden administration, do the same thing, but worse. Here you've gone and these soldiers who stood shoulder to shoulder with our soldiers, these interpreters who kept my husband and his unit and all these other people safe, you're allowing them to run through an airport and beg to hold on to the wheel. You're allowing them to go and beg to leave on any plane that will get them out of there because they know they'll die. You're allowing the women who finally could serve in government and the girls who could finally go to college, you're allowing them to basically go back and be slaves in their country. It, I just can't imagine how that National Security Council meeting went, how those decisions came about, where the contingency plans were, and how they let this happen. And I just have to think, not only are the Taliban and all the terrorist organizations along the Af Afghanistan-Pakistani line celebrating, but China, Russia, and Iran are now more emboldened today because of the actions of what happened over this last week. In your book, With All Due Respect, Defending America with Grin and Grace, you wrote that you studied a lot before coming to New York, but you purposefully did not study the UN itself because you wanted to preserve your ability to see the UN through new eyes with a fresh perspective. I'm not sure, had you prepared, that you would have been able to prepare for this fiasco. Is there anything that the UN could actually do, or do they just issue statements and platitudes and we're all helpless and the statements really are not helpful because they give hope when you can't give hope at the moment, given what's happened. Well, you know, I didn't study the UN because I, all I knew was that everybody hated it. And I knew that if I went in with fresh eyes, that I could, you know, ask for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. I wanted to go and see if I could shake it up a little bit. I wanted to see if we could get something done so that it wasn't just speeches and, you know, talking about archaic things. And I think what we have to look at is, you know, pretty much what I told the ambassadors and the secretary general when I left was in order for the United Nations to be relevant, they have to start talking about things that are uncomfortable to talk about. They have to start really taking on those hard issues. They have to talk about the, you know, the concentration camps in China with the Uyghurs. They've got to now talk about how the fact is you can't acknowledge the Taliban as the head of Afghanistan. That's a terrorist organization. They have to acknowledge all of the resolutions that Iran is not doing, um, you know, and that they're defying in the name of this Iran deal that everybody's debating. There's so many issues they refuse to talk about. And I think if you look at the United Nations, the intent was good. It was if you put 193 countries in the room in the name of peace, that good things will happen. Well, that sounds nice, but it's also naive because those 193 countries don't share the same values. And when you put those countries together and they don't share the same values, then you have very different goals. And I think that's what we've watched happen at the United Nations. 
Let's talk about the Human Rights Council, a UN body whose supposed purpose is to protect human rights around the world. They focus on Israel all the time, as you pointed out relentlessly. I would think that this should be the only thing that the Human Rights Council should be doing now for the next year or however long it takes to give the people of Afghanistan human rights, dignity, safety, security. What do you think? I think, Jason, if you give it a year, the Taliban will be on the Human Rights Council. That's how ridiculous it is. The Human Rights Council is a farce. It's human rights in name only. If you look at the members of the Human Rights Council from Saudi Arabia to China to the Democratic Republic of Congo, it is where bad actors go to keep the finger from being pointed at them and to make sure they're pointing the finger at at others. And, you know, I really, I told the president when we first got into the administration, I said, please don't do anything on the Human Rights Council. Let me just figure this out. I really, one, if he got out of the Human Rights Council immediately, everybody would have said America's not for human rights. And there is no country in the world that really truly morally believes that human rights should be at the center of everything that we do. And so I said, let me figure it out. And what I did was I watched what was happening at the human rights. I saw that they don't check records. They don't have any sort of criteria for who can sit on the human rights council. The second thing is I saw that they have one agenda item that doesn't talk about Syria or Iran or Afghanistan or um, Democratic Republic of Congo or all these places where people die and child soldiers and rapes and things happen. They have one agenda item every year that consistently talks about Israel and bashes Israel. And so I went to my team and I said, we're going to go see if we can change this. We met with over 100 countries and talked about the Human Rights Council. Almost all of them agreed it was an embarrassment. Almost all of them agreed that it was not functional. Almost all of them agreed that it needed improvement. But none of them would agree to stand with us and change it because they felt like it wasn't worth the fight. And the moment that one of our European allies sat down with me and I gave her the reason why we needed to stand together. And she said, Nikki, the U.S. cannot get out of the Human Rights Council because you're the last thread of credibility that it has. And I immediately picked up the phone, went and met with the president. And I said, it's time to get out of the Human Rights Council because I didn't want us to give it one ounce of credibility. We can fight for human rights and we'll continue to fight for human rights. We don't need a council that's a farce to do that. We can do it on our own. And so, you know, unless they really just wipe that whole thing out and start over, I would not be surprised if the Taliban sits on it next year. Yeah, shocking. But I hear you. It's um, There's a facade and then there's the reality behind closed doors. And you got to witness it all and, and try to fight it. Uh, you mentioned Syria, another tragedy in that region. Uh, one of the important things I think you did was to bring the Security Council to the Holocaust Museum. Could you share your thoughts on that? Well, you know, the Security Council, it's like we talked about, you know, they love to give speeches. They love to kind of just talk about what, you know, where their country is coming from. And I thought it was always important to bring human emotion to what we were talking about. I always thought it was important for them to see faces, for them to know the history, how we got to where we are, how we were going. And there was no better place than the Holocaust Museum. It would They were doing a um, exhibit on Syria and the and the victims of Syria and what had happened. And so we brought the Security Council to D.C. and I wanted them to understand that, you know, you can't say 
that in the world we all united and said never again. And then turn around and watch a tragedy that may be different, but still the same in scale on, you know, victims and families broken apart and sacrifices and things that are just unthinkable happening, chemical weapons being used on children. You can't sit there and look at that and be okay with that. And so, you know, trying to bring them to the to the Holocaust Museum and say, look at these faces, look at these families. Our job is to protect them. Our job is to give them hope. Our job is to make sure no bad comes to them. What are we doing to make sure that we can say to them, never again? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it was one more step that I tried to do to just get them to feel something, get them to see something. And, you know, it works on, on a lot of levels. It works. There was one security council meeting, one of my first ones, and it was after um, President Trump, um, well, it was actually when Assad used chemical weapons the first time on those children. And it, what made it worse was he dropped bombs on the hospital so the children couldn't even get help. And I went and was speaking to the Security Council on Syria and I stood up, which I didn't know you weren't supposed to do, but it's okay, I could ask for forgiveness later. And I held up pictures, which you weren't supposed to do, of dead children. And I made them look at these children that died from chemical weapons. And I looked at Russia and I said, how many more of these children have to die before you care? And they were shocked, but you have to do that to them. You have to go and try and get into the conscience of these people. It's the only way we can move the ball forward. You'd think they'd want to get out of their seats and see things the way you tried to present it to them, but I guess that's not the way they operate. In a very memorable moment, you made a speech about peace between Israel and the Palestinians in which you compared the late Egyptian President Sadat to President Abbas. Saab Erkat, the then-Palestinian chief negotiator who has since passed away, said, Nikki Haley needs to shut up and realize that the Palestinian leadership is not the problem. Your reply, consistent with your grit and grace, was, I will decline the advice that was recently given by your top negotiator, Saab Erkat. I will not shut up. Rather, I will respectfully speak some hard truths. And you're known for speaking hard truths there and everywhere else. Can you tell us about that uh, remarkable story? Well, Ericot had lots of um, lovely things to say about me like that. That was one of many. But, you know, the thing was, one, I wanted to make sure that Abbas knew, look, this is what your people are saying. Um, and you can throw stones all you want, but I'm going to continue to throw truths by, right back at you. And, you know, it goes to the heart of so much of the Arab community lied to the Palestinians. They made them think that things were going to get better. They made them think if they continued to be stubborn, continued to fight, continued to hate on Israel, that one day Israel would become Palestine and there would be no more Israel. And, you know, I just, I thought it was wrong. And so I think that, you know, being at the Security Council, whether it was a boss, whether it was any dictator, whether it was Russia or China, it was important to speak the hard truths. And it was also important not to get emotional about the things that they were trying to do to distract us. You know, distraction is, um, is something that they always use in politics to get you to get off your game or to get off the issue. The best thing we can do is to focus, stay on message and speak those hard truths. Life is easier when you tell the truth. And so, um, you know, it was just a reminder to him about how Ericot, um continued to throw stones and how I was going to be unfazed in that and not stop talking about the truth. So among those hard truths for the Palestinians is an organization called UNRWA. It's a corrupt, 
it has an endless pool of people that it tries to help or really doesn't try to help him. It actually gives them no potential future. It's always running out of cash. What are your thoughts on UNRWA and what should be done with UNRWA? Another organization at the UN that I wanted to go and really figure out before I started speaking about it. And so on my first trip to Israel, um, one of the things I did was I met with the directors of UNRWA. I went to the UNRWA schools um, where the Palestinians were. And what I saw was graffiti written on the walls um, that was pure hatred and killing of the Jews. What I saw and, and questioned the directors about was why were textbooks continuing to spew hate of Israelis and the Jewish people the way they were. You know, they would do something basic as if you have five Israeli soldiers and you kill three Israeli soldiers, how many Israeli soldiers do you have left? I mean, no child needs to learn like that because you're indoctrinating hate of the Jewish people when you do that. And so, um, you know, what we did was we said, look, we want to see where more of your money is going. You can't have refugees in perpetuity, even if these people have gone on and moved to other countries, why are you continuing to pay money? And they would always say, we need you to give us money. If you don't give us money, the schools will close. Well, the U.S. had given $6 billion, more than all of the Arab countries combined. And I, you know, I went to the president and I said, look, Every year they're telling us, if we don't give money, they're going to close schools. Why would we give when their own Arab brothers and sisters aren't giving? And secondly, I think that they're just, let's call their bluff. I've never, I don't think the schools are going to close. I think they continue to raise money. They continue to spend it in a corrupt way. They continue to teach hate in their textbooks. They continue to keep their culture the way it is. And they just use us. And sure enough, we went and we cut our funding in half. Um, despite me wanting to cut the whole thing, their schools did not close and they protested us in the streets because we didn't give them more money. We eventually stopped giving them funding. Their Arab brothers and sisters stepped up. And since that organization has literally been in a downward spiral. And again, it's, you know, just because the UN creates an organization doesn't mean it's a good organization. We have to do our homework. We have to know that every dollar matters and where we give it should be behind an organization of truth, not one that is about perception or um, corruption based on what they're really trying to do for their political gain. In another tragic story out of the region, uh, you met with the family of Hadar Golden. Hadar Golden is one of the IDF soldiers together with Iran Shoal, whose bodies are being held by Hamas after a conflict with Gaza, Avira Mengistu and Hisham al-Sayyad, two Israeli civilians who are being held by Hamas. Um, such such sadness. What's your message to these families, to the mothers of these um, boys and to the fathers? You know, I met with the Goldens and I met with Leah Golden, and you want to talk about a woman of true strength and persistence and love for her son. Um, I met with her at the UN and we actually started to make progress. One of really bringing to light what had happened. We were actually working with some of the Arab countries on how to get um, her son's body back. Um, I met with her again in Israel um, when I was there. And it's heartbreaking because this goes to the fact that Hamas is nothing but thugs who don't value life. Um, it's disgusting that they would sit there and harbor bodies in the name of trying to make people feel more pain or hurt more or leverage it. Um, I don't know if, if they even know where the bodies are or not, but the idea that these families have to sit there and wait when they could just give us one simple answer 
is goes to the heart of who Hamas is, goes to why we don't give them a shred of credibility. And it goes to the fact that they don't value life. It's why they say um, death to Israel. It's why they say death to America. And it's why we have to understand that all of these families have suffered enough. And one ounce of credibility to Iran, one dollar that goes to them, one anything that goes towards that Iran deal is doing nothing but funneling money to Hamas, who have gone and made these families suffer way more than they ever should have. Another UN agency, the World Health Organization, tell us how you think they handled the COVID crisis and, and also their notion that they could tell us what to do with our vaccines. Yeah, I mean, the World Health Organization is now a puppet of China. And um, it's not what I think, it's what they did. They showed it in their actions. The idea that, you know, they wouldn't allow Taiwan to be a member. Taiwan in December went and said, um, December before COVID broke, went and said something is wrong. We are seeing, you know, human to human transmission in this. It was told to the World Health Organization. They didn't say anything. Two weeks later, you know, there are things happening in China. They're still not saying anything. China cuts off flights coming into their country, but continues to allow people to leave China because they knew they were infected and they knew they didn't want to be the only country that suffered. And what does the World Health Organization do? They, um, when we finally closed our airports, they held a meeting, said we were wrong to close our airports to the Chinese, that we were wrong to take this and handle it the way they do. Tedros, the head, goes to China, meets with them, and only then comes back and does it the way China wants him to do. And then he goes on to praise them when China tries to steal our vaccines. I mean, it's it's the World Health Organization owes the world answers. And the fact that the Biden administration has gone back to joining the World Health Organization um, is disappointing at best. But if he's going to do that, then they better have a security council where they have the World Health Organization come up and ask them what they knew, when they knew it, how they knew it. Because I would not trust one ounce of anything that the World Health Organization says after we saw them carry all of the weight for China and praise them for what they did during COVID. Yeah, maybe if they wrap an Israel-related question into it, the Security Council will do that. I want to talk about Nikki Haley, the first female governor of South Carolina, youngest governor in the country, second governor of Indian descent, first female Asian-American governor, and first Indian-American in a presidential cabinet. That's a lot of firsts. Isn't that great? Because now we won't have to talk about firsts anymore. Now when the next (laughs) one comes up, it'll be old hat. So that's a good thing. So many groups are just... Take such pride in who you are. What's your message of inspiration to women, minority groups, um, Asian Americans, Americans of Indian descent? You know, I always go back to how I was raised. I was born and raised um, the daughter of Indian parents who told my brothers, my sister and me every day how blessed we were to be in this country. Um, We were the only Indian family in a small rural town, 2,500 people, two stoplights. We weren't white enough to be white. We weren't black enough to be black. Um, My dad wore a turban. He still does to this day. My mother wore a sari. They didn't know who we were, what we were, or why we were there. And I remember when I would get teased on the playground and I would come home and complain to my mom. She would always say, your job is not to show them how you're different. Your job is to show them how you're similar. And it's amazing how I took that lesson on the playground and it played out in my life um, as I worked in the corporate world, as I was governor, as I was ambassador. And I, I say that because 
while we went through those challenges, that same state elected me governor. This same country allowed me to serve as ambassador. I'm one of many stories like that, that show that if you work hard, you can do and be anything you want to be in this country. And we are so incredibly blessed. And so, you know, what I would tell them is don't wait for anyone else to tell you to do it. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because you give back to your country when you do that. Um, You know, my mom always used to say the best way to appreciate God's blessings is to give back. Give back in whatever way you choose. Give back and make sure whatever you do, people remember you for it and that you're great at it. What was your proudest moment as governor? Mm. I think my proudest moment as governor was really, I came into governorship when we had about a 12 or 13% unemployment rate. We had all of our um, jobs had gone into the textile basket, which went overseas. South Carolinians were down on themselves, a lot of unemployed. And what I knew was if you could give a person a job, you could take care of a family. And we really focused on how to lift up South Carolina. I started having all of the um, agencies in South Carolina answer the phones. It's a great day in South Carolina. How may I help you? They hated that. Um, But the goal was I wanted them to remember they worked for the person on the other side of the line, not the other way around. We started making sure that permits were either approved quickly or denied quickly. We started selling and South Carolina now um, makes planes with Boeing. We build cars with, um, we make more cars than uh, from BMW than any place in the world. We brought in Mercedes-Benz. We brought in Volvo. We brought in five international tire companies. Um, by the time I left as governor, we were known as the beast of the Southeast, which I love. And South Carolina had a 3% unemployment rate by the time we left. And so it was really a matter of, we took thousands of people from welfare to work We created skills and believed in people in prisons to where we now have the lowest recidivism rate in the country. And we created jobs that allowed us to be actually in this census, one of the fastest growing states in the country. So really proud of of just people realizing their value and and their, their ability to give back was really fun. What was your most difficult moment as governor? My, my definitely my most difficult moment was um, the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church. I mean, that was that was heartbreaking on a personal level. It was heartbreaking on a state level. It was the first time that we had a shooting in a place of worship. It was the first time we had to have conversations with children about not being scared to go back to church. Um, you had 12 people do what so many people in South Carolina did on a Wednesday night. They went to Bible study. But on this day, someone else showed up. He didn't look like them. He didn't sound like them. He didn't act like them. They didn't call the cops. They didn't throw him out. Instead, they pulled up a chair and they prayed with him for an hour. And when they bowed their heads in that last prayer, he began to shoot. These were people like Ethel Lance, who would go around Mother Emanuel Church cleaning Um, after her daughter had died of breast cancer, singing one day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I ask of you. Give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. People like Tywanza Sanders, who was our youngest victim, had just graduated college and had the world in front of him. But on that night, he stood in front of his 87-year-old great Aunt Susie, looked at the killer and said, you don't have to do this. 
we mean no harm to you. Or it was people like Cynthia Hurd, whose life motto was simply to be kinder than necessary. That's who these people were. They weren't famous, but they loved their families, they loved their communities, and they loved their church. And in one instant, hate took them away. The national media wanted to come in and define everything this was about. They wanted to talk about gun control. They wanted to talk about the death penalty. They wanted to talk about racism in South Carolina. And I remember feeling like I needed to protect those families and I needed to protect our state. This was on the heels of Ferguson. Um, and we there were riots throughout the country. And there was the killer two days later in a manifesto showing himself in images with the Confederate flag. And that was tough because the Confederate flag was flying um, on the grounds of the state house. Um, it had been negotiated in 2000 to come from atop the Capitol to in front of the Capitol. Um, and it was a very hard debate. It, it brought South Carolina to its knees, but I knew once I saw those images that we could not have a child drive by the state house and see that. And I knew that half of South Carolina looked at that flag and saw it as respect and heritage. And the other half of South Carolina saw it as hatred and slavery. My job as governor wasn't to judge either side. My job was to be able to get them to see a better way forward. And so we called for the Confederate flag to come down. Um, we moved it to a museum. Um, we had a brutal few weeks. Um, there were nine funerals, all open casket. I attended all of them. Um, it was, you saw many families just fall over the caskets in grief, but we didn't have protests, we had vigils. We didn't have riots, we had hugs. And the people of South Carolina truly showed the country what strength and grace looked like. And I will forever be grateful to them. But it also you know, shed light on the fact that while I was trying to protect the state, um, I was not taking care of myself and I started to show terrible side effects from it. I was very emotional. I was um, heartbroken and ended up talking with my doctor and was diagnosed with PTSD and had to undergo many months of therapy because I think when you go through a tragedy like that, even though you're not in it, you take responsibility for it. You start to take it personally and you you hold it deep inside. And so it's why I'm very sensitive to members of the military, anyone that has gone through any sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, because what I know is if you get help, um, there is light at the end of it. But if you don't, that it, it can be a very dark place. Well, it's great that you recognize it and more so had the courage to seek the help. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad about that. Let's go to Iran for a couple of minutes. Um, you know, the past, uh, for, since President Biden was inaugurated, he tried to get back into some form of the JCPOA. They now have a president who is responsible for the murder of some 30,000 Iranian citizens in the late 80s. Uh, their proxies foment terrorism around the world, causing our allies all sorts of trouble. What would you tell the Biden administration today? Forget what he tried to do, right? It's, it's maybe over, who knows? But what do you say to him today? Don't do it. Stop. I mean, you don't go and make a deal with someone that says death to America. You don't do it. And, you know, the idea that 
not only do they say death to America, they say death to Israel, who's one of our closest allies. Um, they're a culture of hate. They're a culture of terrorism. They have funded terrorism throughout the world. Um, you don't go make a deal with the devil. And that's what this is. And the idea that Biden is falling all over himself to do this um, is a terrible mistake. And, you know, we saw who Iran was when we literally gave them planes full of cash. They didn't use those that money to help the people of Iran who would desperately love to have the regime um, go away. Instead, they funneled money to Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen and went into Afghanistan and Iraq. All they did was fund terror. And if you give them more money, they will do it again. Um, we went and we were able to stop the bleeding when we when the president got out of the Iran deal and cut off all of those funding fuels. And so for Biden to do that again, it not only would it be a death wish to Israel for him to do that, it would be a threat to the world for him to try and get in bed with Iran in any way whatsoever. And I hope that just looking at what's happened in Afghanistan and looking at the fact that Iran's going to be all involved with the Taliban and all of these terrorist groups, I hope he doesn't go and throw fuel uh, into the fire because that's exactly what this would be. Last question. I get it all the time. I'm sure you get it many more times than me. People keep coming up to me and saying, I love Nikki Haley. Is she going to run for president? What shall I tell you know, it's an easy, fun question to ask, but it's a little bit harder to answer. And that is that I have learned through my life that a year is a lifetime in politics. Um, and so, um, you know, what I'm doing now is focusing on the House, the Senate, getting good governors elected. I will be doing that throughout this year and 2022. And I don't think I need to make a decision on whether there's a further step for me until the beginning of 23. Um, the way I look at it is if we don't win the races and win the House and Senate back in 2022, 2024 won't matter. But what I do know is I'm too young to stop fighting. And whatever it is, I always want to be a voice and a source for good. And I will find a way to do that regardless of what position I hold. Well, keep up that great fight. We need people like you in the fight. I want to thank you, Ambassador Nikki Haley, for sharing your wisdom for your friendship, for your service, and for taking the time to be on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jason, for having me. I hope you found this discussion with Ambassador Nikki Haley insightful. I know I did. Her answers can help you think more deeply about some of the complex problems facing the United States and the rest of the world. You can listen to The Diplomat on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are heard. Please share this episode and other episodes of The Diplomat with your friends and family. I'm Jason Greenblatt, and this is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.